I'm Robin. And I'm Wayne. We're investors at VMG Partners, and we help build iconic consumer brands. Every day, some of the world's most fascinating founders share their stories with us before they've made it. Their highs and lows. Mistakes and triumphs. But always extraordinary results. And now we're sharing these stories with you. This is Unfinished Biz. They start early in the morning and they go home late at night. Our living room, our playground was the flower sacks in the back. On this episode of Unfinished Biz, King's Hawaiian CEO Mark Tyra and President, Chief Strategy and Planning Officer and Chief International Officer John Linehan share the backstory of how a small family bakery in Hawaii grew into an international sensation, but not without some scaling challenges along the way and a few big leaps of faith. Eisenhower said plans are worth nothing, but planning is worth everything, and we we really believe that. Find out how Mark's father laid the foundation for a still-thriving family business with a very special sweetbread nobody else could replicate, how the Hawaiian tourists kept momentum going, and where the King's Hawaiian team believes they're headed next. Unfinished Biz starts now. Well, welcome back to Unfinished Biz. It's certainly been quite a year, um, to say the least. I know we've had a lot going on. I'm sure you all have, but um, we're excited to be back. We are. And, you know, this is a great one to start off with. I mean, I think uh, world's been in such a tumultuous place. There's been a lot to be down about. But, you know, this is a very positive story. And the one I'm talking about is the King's Hawaiian story. Uh, Wayne knows this. A lot of people know this. I am an absolute super fan. I, I consume sheets of their buns like no one's business. And my Robin eats candy and King's Hawaiian buns. It really is, and it is uh, one of the one of the most times that I was most upset was when my dog ate the entire sheet while <laughs> I was out of the house. So it was tragic. But no, like hearing the story and understanding where the family came from and where where they are today, I think we're really in for a treat here. Absolutely. I mean, going from basically one bakery to 17 countries, to say the least, is really impressive. And we had a chance to catch up with Mark Tyra and John Linehan to spill all the company tea or the unsliced bread in this case. Ha ha. I'm gonna get this out of the way right now. I'm I'm just a total fanboy of the brand. I grew he up definitely with it. is. I know. I, I can't stop talking about it. It's just uh, it, it was a big part of my childhood. It brings back such great memories. So thank you guys for joining. How did how did the family's entrepreneurial journey begin, Mark? Uh, it all began with my father uh, back in 1950. He had a love for food and he had a love for making people happy. So that's how he had this idea to create a bakery. And um, he started with a small storefront with one small display case. He opened his bakery across the street from an existing bakery in town who's been there for years. And where, and also, where was this, Mark? Uh, this was in Hilo, Hawaii. Okay. Yep. And uh, he felt that him being new, no one knew about his business. But if he were to be in a location where consumers were going to already buy bakery products and that was his marketing play was he wouldn't need to advertise they're coming across the street they'll see his bakery they'll come in buy his product as long as he made the best product they will come back and keep buying his products did you have a passion um, for baking already like how did why a bakery was this was this a family recipe or no he was in Japan after the war, and he saw how uh, the Japanese love American desserts, how they love American pastries. When they put it in their mouth, it always gave them a smile. 
and, and that's what really uh, made him feel like I need to come back to Hawaii and, and do something that will make people happy. And that's how he picked the bakery products. But, you know, soon he became very successful out of this one small storefront in 1956. He actually built his own store, a standalone bakery called Robert's Bakery. And, and that's when he started to work on developing a the sweet bread product that he had. Actually, it started with his neighbor's mother would produce this bread every weekend for the family. And he loved it. Uh, it was nice and soft, sweet, <laughs> fluffy, very rich because there's lots of eggs in it. However, uh, it only lasted a day. So that wasn't good enough for him to sell. So he started working on his own recipe. And it did take him several months, but he was able to create a bread that had all the richness in it with the eggs and, and just the right amount of sweetness. But the biggest thing was uh, he was able to develop a shelf life over two weeks, which had no preservatives in it. Was it in the format that it looks like today? Did it look like a like a dinner roll type type format then? No, it was our, our original round, what we call sweet bread. So that was interesting in itself in that rather than come up with a loaf bread and have it sliced like every other bakery did back then for sandwiches and toast, because of the amount of ingredients that he put into this bread, it was like creating a cake, the, the eggs, the sugars, the, the milks. Uh, no one made bread with those types of ingredients. They made cakes with those ingredients. Yep. So he had to sell it at a much higher cost than your ordinary white loaf. And if he had the same loaf side by side, they're going to pick the cheaper one. So that's where he had this idea. He should come out with something that looked different. And the consumer wouldn't compare inexpensive white loaf with his round. I like that. Bread. That's fine. I like, I like that. It's like, it's like the, like the, how people come up with different pack sizes today, right. you know, for different channels. This was your dad's way of, of, of creating a different pack size. Yeah. And then that, that really led to um, the sharing of our product among family and friends. Uh, that round loaf, it, it wasn't sliced, so everyone just grabbed at it, took a piece out of it, passed it around the table, took another piece, and that really started the, the sharing of our product among all of our consumers today in, in many different settings. So how did it expand beyond this, the, the first Roberts Bakery location into where did the expansion go? So from, from Hilo, he realized in order to grow, he needs to move to Honolulu. And that's where the population was. That's where the tourists started to come. So in 1960, uh, he sold Robert's Bakery and then he started King's Bakery in Honolulu. And that's how we got our name. Bakery was on the main street in Honolulu called King Street. Oh. Um, yeah. So that, that's how we got our name, King's Hawaiian. How involved was sort of the, the family at that point in time? Was it just him working there or was it more of a group effort? Oh, uh, no. Back in Hilo, he started by himself, landed in the hospital because he was working day and night. <laughs> um, I think then he realized he needed help. So he started to ask family members to join him. So in Hilo, we had quite a bit of family working. When he moved to Honolulu, they didn't have jobs in Hilo. And, and when he opened the bakery in Honolulu, he asked all the family to move to Honolulu and join him and help build the business. And then did you, did you work in that bakery growing up or? We lived there. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> 
Yeah. I mean, you know, they start early in the morning and they go home late at night. So our living room, our playground was the flower sacks in the back. Love it. But in Honolulu, um, you know, the product soon became popular because he started this fundraising uh, project with all the organizations uh, in the city. And soon this sweet bread became the number one fundraising item in the island. And, and that was um, bringing many taxi drivers and many bus drivers in. So soon they were bringing the tourists who were coming to Hawaii to our store to buy the sweet bread. So my mother created these nice gift boxes that they could take this bread home and give their family and friends a gift from Hawaii. And back then there was no internet. So she was putting in these mail order forms and, and soon with everyone writing in, uh, and, and there were stacks of mail on my mother's desk every day, consumers requesting product get shipped to them. But we soon became the number one customer of the U.S. Post Office in, in Honolulu. Oh, really? Truckloads of bread across the country here in the United States, and as well as um, in the Far East. How, how long did that take? I'm just curious, from the move to, to Honolulu, to you know this new brand, to becoming number one, was that an overnight thing or would that take some time? Uh, you know, I don't recall exactly, but it, it was just a few years. Wow. Wow. Just a few uh, years from becoming King's Hawaiian to becoming a, a, a great fundraising brand, tourist brand to probably one of the early precursors to a direct-to-consumer brand. Mm-hmm. I do want to so add that that was in the late 60s and early 70s. And with the air freight, which was terribly expensive back then, it was 50 bucks a loaf. And that's oh my, my goal. <laughs> that's my number one goal is to get back up to 50 bucks a loaf. <laughs> that, that is that's great. Order. That's, that's strong AOV for that time time period yeah. there. So. I told Costco that and they didn't think it was very funny, but I did. <laughs> <laughs> so where, where did it go from there? So you have this, this become this viral brand in this, in the sixties and seventies, you know, it sounds like there's still one location, but doing a lot of different channels of business, basically. What next, Mark? So what my father quickly realized was that tourists were coming from around the world and that this product was accepted by everyone. It it wasn't just a local Hawaiian product. So he knew that Hawaii would be too small for him to continue to build his business. So, you know, he, he really had a vision to try to get this product global. But the biggest step he needed to take was to move to the mainland and it was California. So, he um, started to make trips here to California and, and look for the location to build his bakery. In the meantime, he started testing some of the equipment that bakery manufacturers had to produce these type of products in Hawaii. And that's where it was, um, there's a big learning there in that up until that time, everything was made by hand. He knew he needed to automate the process if he were to open a business on the mainland. And... Um, he started buying this equipment to do testing and nothing worked. It, it was, I, I still recall, our dough was very different from your standard bread dough. And it made a mess of all of this uh, machinery that he brought in. And the manufacturers would have a, somewhat of a robust uh, discussion with my father and telling him that his recipe was wrong because their equipment worked on every bakery on the mainland. Everyone was using it. So his recipe needed to be changed. And that's when he kicked him out because he said, if I change my recipe, I'm changing my product. I love it. That's a good entrepreneur. You, you, you kick out the, mach- 
the, um, yep. the traditional equipment manufacturers. That's when you know you've got something. You're That's like, when you know you have something special. <laughs> yeah. No one else different. can make it. Not sure because it took, it took years to modify the equipment to, to be able to handle the dough that he was creating. Can I ask a question? So in that time period, were you still making bread in Hawaii as well while the iterative process was happening in California on figuring out how to make the bread on the mainland? Uh, Wayne, all the testing was in Hawaii. Okay. Yes, this was all being done in Hawaii. Okay, got it. um, You all are still all in Hawaii at this time period, still just exploring California and how you would scale it. Right. Yeah. So it was in 1976 that he purchased the land here in Torrance, California. And then uh, he built his first bakery. It was a 24,000 square foot building. He had one automated production line making this round sweet bread. And that's how we started here on the mainland. No customers. <laughs> he, he just had so much faith in, in his product and how consumers loved it. And he invested all this money, built this bakery. And I still remember we finished it and there were no customers. <laughs> was, uh, where, did, he, where did the money come from to build the, to, to build the facility in the mainland? Was it just family savings from, from the King's Hawaiian location in Honolulu? It, it was partly that. And mostly uh, my parents mortgaged everything they had in Hawaii, everything. Um, so this was a, a huge gamble for them. I, but you know, a lot of good pressure when you build, you mortgage everything, you build a facility with no customers in the U.S. So what next? Well, being that they had no customers, it wasn't for lack of trying. Uh, no one would <laughs> see him. Uh, back then, all bakeries were direct to store. Yep. And they had like 50 to 60 items on their truck. Here, my father, uh, coming from Hawaii, he had a round bread. No one heard of a round bread that was unsliced. And it was sweet. And bread back then wasn't sweet. It, it was just your typical round sandwich bread. So no one would see him. So what he did was he would leave this product with um, the buyer's assistant. And after a while, the assistants would be calling and say, we ate the bread. We love it, but we don't have any for our boss. You need to bring more over. And they actually opened the doors for us to get into the buyers. And Alpha Beta at that time was the first grocery uh, in Southern California that we uh, started shipping product to. And, and at that point, what, what did the team look like? Was it still very much sort of a family business or did, were there some people getting, getting hired in and brought in? No, so at that time, um, you know, we didn't have family out here in Los Angeles. So it was mostly um, outsiders that we started to hire. We only had at that time one salesperson. Obviously, we didn't have uh, any accounts, and um, he's the one that went through L.A. and started getting these accounts open for us. And it was in um, 1979 is when Safeway, actually, we were at the FMI show in Dallas. They were the ones that came by our booth, tried the product. They loved it, and they put us in all of their stores nationally, wherever we could get into. And did you have to build your own uh, DSD network, or, or, or did you just go through their like Safeway's warehouse system. Like how did you, how did you overcome the fact that everybody else had their own trucks? Well, this is where my father was a little stubborn back then. And um, (laughs) he knew he, he had a product that consumers will want, but they can get it in their mouth. They're going to ask for it. You know, obviously he didn't have the capital to build this um, DSD system. So his plan was to deliver the product to the grocery warehouse and put it on their truck 
to the store, have them take care of the distribution. He was one of the first in LA to, to start that concept. So did the product just fly off the shelf from Safeway at say, in the stores or were there any, any learnings there when you first launched in your first national retailer? Oh, there's lots of learnings, Wayne. <laughs> how to, you know, how to get the product there. It, it was difficult at first. Uh, we set it up through the frozen distribution system of the grocery stores coming in the back door that way. And they ended up putting our product in the freezers because <laughs> it was shipped frozen. And they thought it was supposed to be so frozen. <laughs> and we had to work through that phase and finally get it over to the bakery deli area. And once it was there, did the consumption just start taking off? Like, how did you get people who had maybe potentially never tried King's Hawaiian ever or this different looking type of bread than they've seen before? How did you drive trial for a new product, new brand and a new kind of new to Safeway? You know, my father's strategy was based on his learnings in Hawaii, having our own store. He always said that he needed to get the product in people's mouths. And once they do, and once they try it, they'll come back and, and buy more. Here on the mainland, uh, we did many demos to get the product going. And putting product in front of uh, consumers after walking into the markets was important. So he worked on building displays, setting up these racks. So there was this retail prominence, what we call today, in the store. You know, we have John Linehan here, too, the president of the company. You, Mark, is, you know, family and, uh, and, and CEO. How did, how did the two of you meet and how did John come into the fold? Uh, I, I met John through a, through a friend that we were working with um, at the time. And I guess our first experience was different. Maybe, John, you can share, share with them about yeah. how you felt the bakery business was. Sure. I got out of college, worked for Procter & Gamble, and then worked for Clorox. And about uh, 10 years after I got out of college, I started a consulting business by accident. And mostly what we did were very simple strategic plans for, for almost all family-owned businesses, $20 million to $200 million in volume, kind of in that range. And so I met Mark. And the company was about $50 million in revenue. And Mark had just built, I think it was a $63 million plant, right? And so, you know, if you ask about betting, making a big bet, that's a hell of a bet to make a, <laughs> build a plant that's almost 30% more expensive than your annual revenue. So uh, Mark asked me to come down and talk to him about uh, setting kind of the next strategy for the company. And I looked at the plant with him and it was fascinating. It was a beautiful new plant, very, maybe the most mechanized computerized plant, uh, bakery plant in the world. And he said, what do you think? And I said, I think you ought to get out of the bread business. <laughs> and he's, fortunately, he's very kind. Um, but he did start walking me to the door, but he did it without putting his foot on my butt, you know? <laughs> and so he, he's also a very curious guy. So he asked me like, well, tell me about why you would say that. And my answer was bread's a terrible business to be in. It's a commodity business. It uh, has very commodity-ish, typically ingredients. There's too many skews in the bread aisle. It's all DSD. So I don't think this is bread. I think this is the beginning of a Hawaiian food category. And I think we ought to think of this as the beginning of Hawaiian food, not bread. And that was in the strategy we wrote. I think we want to stay out of the bread aisle. And we are, with, one, with the exception of one account, our primary location in every store in America is either the bakery or the deli. It's not in, in bread because we're maybe 35 cents an ounce and you can get cheap private label white bread for nine to 12 cents an ounce. And I don't want to be next to that, you know, so 
that was the beginning of our strategic plan to the plan and and uh, which we wrote the first one in the spring of 2006 sounds like it was a consulting project you know seems like a pretty long consulting project here up to 2020 how did they how did you end up staying after the Mark won't pay my invoices, so I'm just waiting for you to get paid, and then I'm out of here. The truth comes out. <laughs> it, it was interesting. What happened was um, uh, we just became friends. And really, I stopped doing, I mean, we would talk once in a while, but I stopped doing work shortly after 2006. And he asked me to get involved uh, about a year later, uh, two days a month. Just don't be a consultant be part of the executive team two days a month. Don't be a consultant because then you have to take this, the customers are always right sort of attitude. And we know that's not right. So Mark's a fisherman and he knows if you, you just put bait on the hook, once you get the fish in the boat, it can't get out. You know? <laughs> it can change its mind and flop around on the deck, but it ain't getting out, you know? How did and he describe the role? So like two days a week, what was two days a month? I'm sorry, two days a month. Oh, two days a month. Okay, wow, yeah. that you're right. That you're barely in the boat there. Yeah, um, but it worked. Yeah. So what happened was it became a hundred hours a week, and I gave the consulting business to the people who worked there because they, I had it. It was it happened by accident, and I they built it. I didn't. But what happened was interesting, and this is good for I think maybe your entrepreneurs when they're deciding whether to partner with somebody. Um, Mark is very strong but also very kind, very gentle, very patient, very selfless. People here would lie down on a railroad tracks for him. I am New York Irish and kind of working on it. <laughs> so when we speak, I mean, you can see it today, right? It's really different personalities. But the reason why it worked is because our values are almost identical. Uh, and what we're trying to build, our vision for what we're trying to build, is identical you know we never have to debate whether we should do the right thing or not if there's a debate it's like well what is the right thing given the COVID was a great example people were saying in march hey 40 50 percent of all the people who get this will will die um and so we've got 13 1400 people um do we send them to work tomorrow you know uh well if none of us do that uh, leading food companies. America doesn't eat. So sometimes it's hard to figure out what is the right thing to do in a case yep. like that. So we've had that debate, but we've never had the debate, should we do the right thing? Never, not once in 15 years. Uh, so if you, if you pick a partner you know, in business or in marriage or whatever it is, find somebody who has the same values as you do. If you find somebody with a really different personality, that will make it more spicy and fun. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so well, tell us, you know, from the time you joined the business two days a month to today, tell us about the evolution of roles and responsibilities. Value and vision alignment is really important, but almost like tactically speaking, who does what and how has that evolved? Before John says anything, I, I just want to say that when John joined me, it was all about how do we continue to build the family and, and bring value to the family the most important thing that John and I work on. So it was a couple of days a month. It was supposed to be one day in LA and one day, you know, eight hours of phone calls or whatever, you know, and all of a sudden I was in LA every other week and then every week. <laughs> and then I realized I'd spent 1400 nights in the same hotel in LA. And so I bought a place <laughs> and I still technically live in San Francisco. Um, um, and the, so how did it evolve? 
we had the same vision, right? That was the strategic plan 1.0, which we wrote in 2006. Everything we've done together, or I'd say, Mark, tell, tell me if you disagree, 98% of all the time we spent together, other than fun time, right, has been on the strategic plan. I tend to work on certain things more than Mark does. Mark tends to work on certain things more than I do. He has a lot of expertise, the manufacturing process, the science, things like that. Um, I tend to be more in the sales and marketing and finance area and strategy. Any major decisions we tend to make together, Mark is the final authority. He is the CEO. He is the owner of the company. And I know that and I respect that, but we don't behave that way very much. You know, one of the things I find with companies, when I was a consultant, I used to do this, is eight people in the executive room, okay? And I'd ask everybody a question and I'd ask them to write it down and then give it to the person next to them. Because I don't want you guys reading what you wrote because you won't read what you wrote, right? <laughs> Not after you hear what other people wrote. <laughs> and so one of the questions is, when you get there, define there. When the company gets there, what is there? And if there were eight people, I usually got at least seven completely different, not slightly different, completely different answers. And um, that was how I would convince a company, you don't have a strategic plan. You, you may have a three-ring binder that, that Bain or McKinsey put together for you, but you don't have a plan. And because I think we're so aligned on that vision, you know, on when we get there, this is what there is, and this is how we'll get there. It's easy for us to talk about the issues and the challenges and what we need to do in any in any particular situation. I don't know if that answers your question, Lane. I think that's that's really helpful. I think you know a lot of founders also think have to think through or do think through at some point bringing on part of their management team or or even you know a president things of that nature you spoke about having a shared vision and shared values which i think everybody would also say is incredibly important but i guess how do you do that i mean you guys have actually been able to do that and you're you're kind of together 15 16 years later and it feels really strong in the beginning what was it building the strategic plan together? Was that sort of the the inciting moment? Or is it more of a, a social, just deeply personal conversation? You know, it, it all comes down to, um, as John said, sharing the same values. Uh, a lot of that is about what we were trying to build. We are trying to build a business. However, it's about building the organization with people in it. Since day one, John and I both feel strongly about trying to build Kings of Wine to, to an organization where all of our people love coming to work every day. They love going home, talking about the work that they did, whether it was fun or a difficult day. They were willing to share with their family stories about, about work. And that's the kind of organization that, you know, we talk about putting um, aloha into it. It's the, the, the behaviors we have today in our company is very different from other companies. And, and that's something John and I both um, share and I, I think brings us together as to why working together is so important. So I was a little kid and I heard somebody say, uh, I, you know, about people, uh, I hired you for, for what you do and I fired you for who you are. And so one of the things that we pay a lot of attention to, and, I, and I, I'm sharing this because I think any uh, entrepreneur that's building an organization and hiring people, um, I think most people hire all on the what. You know, what have you done? What skills do you have? What experience do you have? And they may hire a really talented jerk, you know, because they don't look at the who. And yeah. so we look at four things and we look at the what, 
which is peculiar to every job, right? And then we look at the who, which are three things. It's emotional intelligence led primarily by awareness, what we call the three C's of thinking, critical, uh, collaborative. I don't care who gets credit for it. I just want to get it done. And the hardest one to get is curious. And then there are behaviors. Um, and our behaviors are, are you know, valued behaviors are around excellence, around dignity and respect, and around, there's just three, telling it like it is, but in a way that can be heard. Sometimes we hire people, you know, <laughs> who don't have the skills or experience, you know. Um, we are going through a very expensive and transformational, digital transformation in this company. We are changing the way all of us think. And so we hired, you ready for this, a 27-year-old kid who hadn't had one day of experience in it. Right, Mark? (laughs) (laughs) And some of our executives flipped out like, you know, he's 27 years old. (laughs) And Mark and I said, don't worry, in November that all changes because he turns 28. So that probably (laughs) will. And only we thought it was funny, you know. But um, McKenzie told me that blanking kid has taken your company further than we could have gotten them, and we would have charged you about five million bucks. So that's how powerful the who is, right? Um, and absolutely, um, you need people, especially in a startup, who have skills. You don't have time or money to always train them and bring them up to speed. In five years, you might, um, but pay attention to the who. When you joined the business, you said it was about a fifty million dollar business. Are you able to share kind of what does the King's Hawaiian Juggernaut look like today? Mark? Go ahead, John. <laughs> about, about 500 million. Um, so in, in uh, 2005, we we're about 50 million. Uh, we had very low household penetration and awareness and frequency of purchase. And today we're in 17 countries, about 500 million in revenue and very high household penetration for a typical brand. I think it's about two thirds of what we will get. And the frequency is three times what it was back then, frequency of purchase. And I think it's probably about a third of what it could be eventually. Wow. And I assume since since the fact that Mark mentioned, they just basically mortgaged their, their life in Hawaii to build the facility. Sounds like no capital has really been raised. I assume it's a profitable business at half a billion in revenue? Yes. <laughs> I'm looking at Mark for... <laughs> Yeah, it, it, it is. And we paid off the mortgage on the house in Hawaii, too. <laughs> uh, nice. Very nice. Uh, no, actually, you know, our, our, our challenge right now is we're, we're really looking for acquisitions, both in Hawaiian food, which which is, means very small back in Hawaii, build it in Hawaii, and then introduce it to the mainland. And we've made some investments there, but also outside of King's Hawaiian in sort of a Nuco perimeter and frozen brands that are not necessarily Hawaiian because we build capabilities in supply chain and super capabilities in marketing and um, one of the best sales forces in the United States of America. They really knows the perimeter. And so we're looking for acquisitions there, but that would be a Nuco outside of Hawaiian food. But then that would, would it still be run and sold by the same team in terms of going into the stores and headquarter and then, calling? Initially, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And we've got all kinds of theoretical plans for as we made more acquisitions, what would happen. But at that point, I'm always reminded of Mike Tyson's statement. Everybody's got a strategic plan until you get punched in the face. <laughs> <laughs> so we have a plan actually that goes out to 2035. Yeah. But the further you go out, the more you know 
you were probably headed in the right direction, but it ain't going to happen exactly the way you planned it. But Eisenhower said plans are worth nothing, but planning is worth everything. And we, we really believe that. And, and is part of that vision remaining a closely held family owned business or are there any aspirations, you know, to be part of the IPO SPAC boom or anything like that? I think Mark feels the same way. The answer to your question is no. But I think Mark feels the same way. If you paid me a billion dollars a month, I wouldn't have anything to do with the public company. It's just, it's just not fun. And we're not like big livers. We, we don't spend a lot of money. And we have, we have a lot of fun. Kind of one of our personal rules is, you know, don't do stuff if it ain't fun. Right after the break, we'll be back with our featured guests, Mark Tyra and John Linehan of King's Hawaiian. Unfinished Biz is a VMG Partners production. Subscribe for free on the podcast app of your choice or visit us at unfinishedbiz.com. Follow us on our Unfinished Biz LinkedIn page for news and updates in addition to each new episode. And if you love the show, we'd love an iTunes review. But now, let's get back to our episode with King's Hawaiian CEO Mark Tyra and President, Chief Strategy and Planning Officer and Chief International Officer John Linehan. So I think you've already mentioned this a, a little bit, but at any point in time in, in the history of King's Hawaiian, was there really sort of a, a particular moment where you felt like you bet the company where... If it didn't work out, you might not be here. Well, I, I would say early on in, in the life of the business, when we moved from our, our first building in Torrance and, and built our big bakery here, that was a big gamble. And as John said, you know, um, this building was, had all the bells and whistles, the state-of-the-art equipment, but um, our capacity increased uh, from where we were to this new building by at least four times. And uh, we didn't have the business, but I, I, I just had confidence in the consumer, love for our product. But that was a big gamble to be able to build something so big with such a huge investment uh, and not have the business at hand. Well, like how John put it, was um, spending $63 million to build a facility with $50 million of revenue and have John come in and say, well, you're not even a bread business. You know, yeah. I really, I really, I really love that, that, uh, that portion of the, the, yeah. uh, the journey there, but transition next part, you know, I, I love for both of you to answer. Could you share, you know, what's, what's been the highest point in terms of, of the journey to date for Kings Hawaiian? Maybe I'll start with you, Mark. For me, it's um, pretty much where we are today. Um, build, you know, I've always said we were trying to build an organization. Today, I feel that the leadership team that we have is probably the best team I've ever worked with. And uh, they all have the same values as I do, as well as the family. And that's the most important thing. But being able to continue to take the business forward, I really need a good organization. And we've been spending all these years building it. And today, I feel we have it. John, do you have a, is this the same high point or do you have a different one? Same, same thing. You know, what we, we believe that people who behave well and also who are high performance, high performance teams are not mutually exclusive. You don't have to pick one. So I think the time is now because we're not done with that journey. We're not, you don't get to the end of the road there. It's constant growth, but uh, we have a, a very high performance team here and they're all smarter than I am, which is everybody asks me, doesn't that mean you would never fire people who are so much smarter than you? And I tell them no, because my best friend owns the company. Otherwise I'd be scared to death. <laughs> um, it's just, it really feels good, you know? And so we, the two of us have been 
moving further and further away from day-to-day planning and day-to-day decisions. It's just really rewarding, you know, because that's what we sat down in 2005, you know, at dinner and just talking about, well, like, what do you want out of life? You know, what, what, what do you want on your tombstone? You know, one time we even wrote each other's eulogies, not the eulogy <laughs> we would have, but the eulogy we wanted. Right. Uh, and that was pretty powerful. I mean, I wish we, I wish we had more time. I'd love to, I, I would, I would have loved to have dived in on that. But uh, Mark, it, what's been the lowest point? There's always hard times in every entrepreneurial journey. What's, what, what, what would you say has been the lowest point for your family's entrepreneurial journey? You know, I, I don't know if I would ever call anything of the lowest point. Uh, there's times on the journey that we've had probably bigger challenges than, than, I would want, um, and I, I would say it would go back to the the day that we made the big gamble on building this big bakery at Harborgate. You know, for the family, that, that was a huge risk. It wasn't just my personal finance, but I, I risked the entire family's wealth uh, to put that up. And it wasn't the lowest point, but it's probably when I had every every family member working really, really hard to build this business. And that's when we really got together and um, it was do it or die. Yep. Makes sense. John, you? Um, there have been a couple of times that we found out that people in the organization were not treating people with respect or dignity um, and were behaving badly, not in the sense of illegal, but in, um, you know, we sort of think everybody in the company wears our face. That just is like a, a gut punch for me, for both of us, really, when you find out that somebody who had a leadership position was behaving badly and treating people, um, again, not illegally, but just disrespectfully and without dignity. And um, that's what well, comes we back to that build. who that you talked about, right? You know, we they know, may yeah. have had the what, but not the who. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, when you have that happen and you're in a leadership position, you got to look in the mirror and say, hey, you screwed up really bad, <laughs> you know. Uh, so those, there have been a couple of days like that. Not many, though. Just a couple. And at this point, what keeps you guys up at night? Uh, I would say it's, it's breaking this brand promise we have with our consumers. Every day, every minute that I'm on the floor, it's always about making the most irresistible product that we can give our consumers with Aloha in it, which is doing it the right way. You know, we've built up such a strong following and it's, it's like you, if I, if you were to buy our product and it was something was wrong with it, you may not buy it again. And, and that brand promise that I have and the business has for our consumers is everything. If we should do anything wrong to, to break that promise, uh, we probably won't have a business. So that, that's what keeps me up at night. Absolutely. John? So it's a very similar answer. What keeps me up at night is us. Um, because companies that have a lot of success get a disease and it's terminal. It's called comfort. And if you look at every company that's failed, in almost every case, what happened before they failed was they got comfortable. Um, and so that scares me. And sometimes uh, some people here will tell me, you know, John, you make me really uncomfortable. And I always tell them, good, that's my job. Because I don't want you comfortable. I want you to feel safe. Uh, I want you to feel respected. Uh, I want you to feel trusted, but I don't want you comfortable. Don't get comfortable with the quality. Be be on it every minute. 
Well, Wayne, what a story. I mean, it's such an incredible business. Kings Hawaiian, already a $500 million business with tremendous profitability, focusing on really just doing one thing and doing it incredibly well. I think what this really does is it highlights that a focus on quality and simplicity, I mean, that is a recipe for creating a good business and a cult brand. Absolutely. I mean, too many entrepreneurs that we come across, Robin, are trying to get there way too quickly. And some of the best businesses we've seen, they just take time to build, but they end up with a higher ceiling as a result. You know, they don't always have to be a platform brand like we get pitched all the time, but certainly it takes a great team to get there. Team is honestly one thing that, you know, Mark and John spent a lot of time thinking about. I mean, the number of times that they talked about alignment and about culture, you can very, very easily see where they want to spend their time and what they're focused on as an institution. It really shows. Including their big picture company goals. They don't have aspirations of being a public company. They want to be a long-standing family business, a profitable one, and including acquisitions. We're certainly excited to see what the future holds for Kings Hawaiian. But at a minimum, we hope they continue to sell us the most amazing buns on the planet. Let's jump straight to our rapid fire game. This is our, our signature game. First thing that comes to mind, gentlemen, we're just trying to go. It's rapid for a reason. We're going fast. If you don't know the answer, just say pass. This so is, this is hard hitting journalism, big time stuff here. This is uh, <laughs> this is the moment everybody's been waiting for, guys. So you ready, Mark and John? Yep. No. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, what's the most used app on your phone? My calendar. What sports team are you most loyal to, John? <laughs> I don't follow sports at all. Uh, and two friends, one of their parents owned the the Patriots, and the other. I went on the um, Bruins in Boston, and I found out that all the people on the Boston Bruins were from Canada. And it's like, well, what's it got to do with Boston? You know, <laughs> the last time I had any interest in professional sports, sorry. John, who inspires you? Uh, Mark. What's the weirdest job Clyde you've Channing. ever had, Mark? The weirdest job I ever had? I don't know. Cleaning out a dumpster. <laughs> <laughs> John, who or what makes you laugh? politics laugh or cry <laughs> do you have any hidden talents mark maybe i love to cook that might be one okay what's the last concert you went to um elton john what's your favorite meal of the day mark dinner dinner when i can eat the most <laughs> john what did you get detention for in school um getting in fights and leading the fire drill into the janitor's closet <laughs> you have a preferred method of exercise mark Oh, I get on the treadmill. Where in the world do you feel most at home? With my friend. Anywhere. With friend. Okay, well, that's great job, guys. That was a great rapid fire. Last question. Mark, for, first you, then John. What, what advice do you have for aspiring entrepreneurs? You know, it, it's, business is all about people. And just really learn how to deal with people, how to motivate them, and uh, how to work together. Uh, in a very inclusive way. John? So three things. One, have a plan. Planning is everything, even if the plan has to change. Two, uh, surround yourself with the right people, the who. Uh, and three, um, don't ever be a position. Don't be the president or be the CEO. Be the best you you can be. The position is something you hold, but it's not who you are. As soon as you become the position, then there is no you, just the position. 
Wise words, gentlemen. Congrats on all the success. Robin and I, as we mentioned, huge fans of Kings Hawaiian. It's an honor having you guys on the show and congrats on all the success. And thanks again for joining us on Unfinished Biz. Good to see you guys. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. You've been listening to Unfinished Biz. I'm Robin. And I'm Wayne. We'll be back next time with founder and CEO of Partake Foods, Denise Woodard, to learn all about how allergens ended up paving the way for a thriving business. I don't remember what came first. I think I sold my engagement ring and then I emptied my 401k. I didn't empty it at one time. It was just like, okay, I'll take this amount out and then we'll raise enough money and then we did it. And so then I was like, okay, I'll take a little bit more out and then there wasn't anything left to take. These are the opinions of Robin and Wayne and our guest entrepreneur and are not necessarily the opinions and thoughts of VMG partners. And now a word from our lawyers. This is not an offer to buy or sell any investments. Entrepreneurs interviewed on this podcast may not be associated with VMG businesses and discussions of their companies should not be viewed as an endorsement by VMG.